the most important, most difficult job that any human being will ever have in this lifetime or any other is that of being a parent. Now, I'm not blessed with any children of my own at the moment, but I do take great interest in my nieces and nephews' lives, interest in their education, their well-being. Simply put, their struggles are also my struggles as I navigate and lend troubleshooting to any problems that they might face. Too often today, parents are banging their heads up against the wall, trying to get answers to questions that their kids inevitably are going to keep asking. Does it feel like you're failing? Does it feel like you're drowning at times? Good. It's supposed to, at least according to my guest today on today's episode. Uh, I sat down with Ann Kaplan, a parent coach out of Denver, Colorado. She's been doing this about 13 years. And she says failing forward is a must do as a parent on the road to success. She also speaks about boundaries and how boundaries are put up to keep people in our lives, not out. So if you take anything from this episode today, let it be this. Fail. Because failing is trying. And even though I'm not one yet, parenting, in my opinion, is really just about showing up and doing your absolute best. So that being said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Bobby Talks, there's always more to the story. Welcome everyone to Bobby Talks, dot, dot, dot. Those dots are there to tell you that there's always more to the story. And today's story is, well, probably the hardest job any human being will ever have talking about parenting. And today I've got the lady with all the answers. We're sitting down with Ann Kaplan. She's a parent coach out of Denver, Colorado, uh, going on about 13 years. And uh, I'm just very blessed and happy to have her on the show because I know a lot of you guys have been asking questions about or asking requests of me to get a parent coach on or somebody that can help out with a lot of these trials and tribulations that you guys have. And I think we found a good one here today. So, Anne, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Did I get all that right? Are you from Denver? Yeah. Well, I guess technically I'm really from Michigan, but I've been living in Denver for 20 years with a brief hiatus in Spain for a couple of years. So yes. Man, Long story short, I'm from Denver. <laughs> well, you do know that our, our target audience is Michigan because I'm from Michigan. So uh, oh, what part of Michigan right? are you from? Yeah. Um, I'm from Grand Rapids. My husband's from West Bloomfield. We own a lake house now on Long Lake in Traverse City. And so we are true Michiganders. And at this point, I'm like counting down the minutes until my kids can hurry up and get out of school so I can move back to Michigan. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a it's been an extraordinarily hot summer. We're very uh, very happy for it here. I'm from Adrian. I don't know if you're familiar with that part, but we're about yeah, yeah. southeast Michigan. So that's where this uh, podcast mm -hmm. is taking place. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And you were talking to me off air a little bit. I asked you how long you had been a parent coach for, um, and you said 13 years, tentatively on and off mm -hmm. with some things, and then five years specifically. And I know you got some websites and some things that, you know, some helpful resources for our folks here today. Um, mm -hmm. I just want to ask you some couple questions. You're a mother of four. That's right. I've got four kids. My oldest kid is a senior in high school. He'll be 18 in December. That's crazy. So I guess I, do I still get to call him my kid? Oh, yeah. Um, He's always going to be your kid. <laughs> and then my youngest is starting third grade this year. He's eight. Okay. Wow. So you got him all kind of about 10 years there, right? Yeah. I will be trapped in parenting purgatory for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask this question because you started roughly 13 years ago, you said with pregnant women and, um, you know, toddlers and, you know, smaller age children, you 
Did you just feel like it was so easy when your 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 oldest boy was uh, five years old? You're like, I'm very good at this. I think I have yeah. all the answers. <laughs> or or how does someone become a parent coach? Is it is it because you have a difficult child? Is it somewhere in the middle? What was your what was kind of your history? Yeah, so I'm sure there's lots of different paths to doing a career like mine. For me personally, it was my own personal journey to being the parent that I want to be that really opened my eyes to how important this work is, how um, needed it is, and how much support we are not getting as parents. And so, you know, for me, for myself, I kind of like cobbled together all the things that I needed to kind of overcome my own story and break generational cycles and actually just learn parenting skills. You know, it's like a little bit of book reading, a little bit of taking a class, a little bit of working with a coach, a little bit of a therapist, and you kind of mush it all together into this comprehensive thing that equals my ability to parent my kids how I want to and really be the parent I want to be. And, you know, as my clients, like you said, I started working with newer families in the beginning, pregnant families, babies, you know, that newborn phase and stuff like that. And as my own kids grew, as my clients' kids grew, I started fielding more and more of these kinds of questions. And it just was kind of like this organic process where I finally was just like, you know, this is, I really feel like I'm, I'm feeling um, a little bit of a need or a gap here in support for families where you can actually get the information and the knowledge, the skill building, but then also the emotional support, the digging deep, like all the stuff we need to do to just kind of get over ourselves so that we can actually do all the stuff we're reading about in these books and learning about in these classes. Yeah, the support, especially emotional support, because I think a lot of times whenever, you know, if you have a, if you're blessed with a, I don't want to say perfect child, because no child is perfect, but if you're blessed with an easier upbringing, um, I feel like it it would be maybe a what's the word I want to use here? Um, maybe you wouldn't think so much about like uh, the stresses that other parents might go through and the emotional support that they might need because when you're someone who is you know struggling on a day to day just to kind of what I've been referring mm -hmm. to the show or this episode as failing forward as a parent, it's like you know that comes with a weight that just bears on you every day and you can't show that in front of your child um but you definitely bear it at night when you know you go to close your eyes and that, that's not healthy so it's great to have resources like you and who are willing to help um how do you juggle though your clients and mm -hmm. find time to raise four kids of your own i mean that's uh, that's pretty impressive yeah. Well, it definitely helps that my kids are school aged and I don't sure. homeschool them unless there's a global pandemic. Yeah. So <laughs> I have time in my day where I'm not one on one, like really in, in the ring with them, so to speak, which means that I can set up my business where I meet with my clients while my kids are in school and things like that. I also have a really supportive partner and things like that. But I will say like, beyond just the logistics of managing something like that, of course there's overlap because something comes up with my kids that I haven't figured out how to navigate yet. And maybe I'm feeling a little bit of lack of confidence and insecurity in my own ability as a parent. Well, of course that's going to spill over into like, gosh, you know, if I'm really not versed in this, if I'm really not skilled in supporting myself and my family through this, you know, how does that mean about my qualifications or my skill set as a coach. And that's part of my own work throughout this whole journey has been to really separate 
Um, you know, just because I haven't navigated one specific challenge as a parent doesn't mean that I can't support a client going through that. Or just because I, like you say, fail forward as a parent, which I do, I am not a perfect parent, doesn't matter how skilled I am or how much of a quote unquote expert I am, I still screw up daily. So just because I'm doing that doesn't mean that I'm not making differences in people's lives and being the help meet that they hired me to be and things like that. So yeah, it is, it's, it's, um, it's part of the job, right? It's just like with any job, like how do you not carry that stuff home with you? How do you leave work at work? All that stuff. It's probably just a little bit more mushy for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. I, uh, you know, it, some of the things you said though, is that, you know, figuring out how to navigate your own child, um, versus someone else's, it doesn't mean that you don't have advice that you can lend because every child sure. is a variable, right? They're a variable right. of their own and everyone's going to, every child is going to respond differently. So you might throw out something that works for your clients, but doesn't necessarily even work for you. Um, sure. and I find that as a school teacher, a lot of times we'll, as teachers, we will tend to talk to each other about different, you know, tactics or techniques that we can do with maybe, you know, challenging students of things like that, that we want to maybe figure out how to navigate them back towards us, um, to, you know, back to learning something back to the education portion of it. And, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes one teacher will be more effective with it than another. And it's the same student. So, you know, it's just these variables, sure. there's too many of them to be able to predict. And, uh, yeah. So navigation well, is a great is word. Yeah. Well, and I think also the truth is for me anyway, like I, in many ways, we're more skilled at supporting somebody else than we are at supporting ourselves because we don't have that like skin in the game we do when it's our own drama, you know, so we can be objective and have that like 30,000 foot perspective. That is exactly what people hire me for to say, you know, well, how about we look at it this way? Or, you know, if, if this weren't your kid, how would you be looking at the situation or, you know, what does your inner intuition and gut check say about the situation as things that are really hard to stay in touch with when you're actually in the thick of it in your own personal life? Yeah, no, that's a good way of looking at it. I, um, you know, I think there's a lot of specific questions that we could ask you, and I think we're going to as the show goes mm -hmm. on. But uh, I kind of want to talk to you about this parenting philosophy that you, you've mentioned a couple times. Um, sure. How often when you talk to your clients, or maybe just what do you think is a percentage of parents who actually before they become parents sit down and talk about philosophy mm -hmm. because you know at you know people as two individual peoples come together and try to start a family or whatnot they might have opposing philosophies and if they haven't sat down even though you know it's easy when a child is on its way to just think oh we'll we'll, we'll know the answer mm -hmm. when it comes but how many parents actually sit down and come up with philosophy long before the child gets there versus those that kind of wing it on the fly. Um, what do you find in your, you know, your, your, your field? What do you find in your, through your research? What have you, what has come up? Well, I would say that actually sitting down and having like a really intentional, like, okay, you know, what's our plan conversation. I would say that's pretty rare actually, but okay. I do think that a lot of people have at least sat down and, you know, pontificated with their partner about like, you know, when I have kids, I'm going to do such, such and such, or even just talking. Like I remember before I had kids, my husband and I would just be like, so judgy about like parents in the airport, parents in restaurants, <laughs> parents on the street. Mm, we'll never do that. Oh my gosh. Can you believe they're letting this or that happen? You know, so we, we kind of have these but actually those conversations, those judgmental conversations are a great example because no matter how much you prepare in advance for this, you don't know what you're talking about. And so 
like you could have a philosophy. And for me personally, I did not something necessarily that I had written down, but like my journey to being so intentional and dedicated to my parenting came like it does for many parents through really toxic parenting that I experienced. So before I ever even was ready to have kids or even thinking about growing my family, I already in my mind had very clear ideas about what I at least was not going to do as a parent and um, the kind of relationship I wanted to have with my kids and how I wanted to treat them and things like that. Now, once the rubber hit the road, I realized it's a lot easier to say how you want things to go down than to actually make them happen. So, you know, there's a big difference between having a vision of like how you want a parent and then actually being in the thick of it and actually being able to execute that plan. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you said something though about like your toxic upbringing. Um, mm -hmm. How much of that is pertaining or, um, you know, contributes to you being a parent coach now? Um, a lot. Hand in hand. For okay. sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like my purpose in life is to kind of like be the like the end of that cycle of my generations of toxic parenting in my family. So, you know, it's just, it's like, yeah, it's the, my reason for living <laughs> truly almost even beyond being like, you know, everybody will say, Oh, my kids, like they're my reason for living or, you know, we, whatever, no matter how you say it, we all love our kids so much. And they're just like our heart and soul. when we, once we have children, and for me, that is true. But even bigger than that for me is for me personally is almost like uh, almost like a bigger goal. That's just about not necessarily just parenting them as individuals, but like changing the legacy in our family. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a gentleman on a couple couple episodes ago about uh it was fatherless millennials. It was this mm -hmm. idea myself, you know, I was raised without my father, a single mother, um, and the gentleman I had on same thing. And it was specifically looking and diving into men, but, um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to women or, you know, um, you know, little girls, unfortunately experience the same thing from their mothers as fathers do from, or boys do from their fathers and sometimes vice versa even. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's so crazy how, I mean, it is, I mean, it, obviously it's their formidable years, but like the impact that you have in those first 18 years, maybe even the first 12 years of your life, really it dictates, you know, the rest of your life. And here you are trying to change, you know, put the end to a cycle and break it and go to a different direction, um, which is amazing. And I mm -hmm. hope you are proud of yourself for doing that, but that's, uh, that's difficult to do because so many people end up being another statistic of the same cycle that they just came from and they just contribute to it, even though they, you know, yep. they continue to wear, you know, that baggage with them and they, they wish they didn't have it, but they don't know how to shed it. So you, sure. you have this self-awareness. Yeah. It's kind of like a forest for the trees situation. Like I can't tell you how many parents I talked to who are like, I told myself I wasn't going to be like my parents. And, and, you know, and in these very kind of like microcosm ways, they're not. When you look at things like, well, my mom uh, spanked me, well, so I'm not going to spank my kids, for example. And and they might be successful in not spanking, but if you take the that step back and look once again at the forest, not the trees, like what we're saying when or what this parent is saying by talking about their parent spanking them is, I was raised in a culture of 
punitive parenting, maybe anger, probably shame, you know, that is kind of the soup I was cooked in. And you might be successful at not um, spanking your kiddo. But I, like I said, I can't tell you how many parents I talk to who come to me and say, okay, well, I'm not spanking my kid, but I definitely feel like I'm turning into my mother in the sense that I'm so angry. I do feel you know, resentful or punitive toward my child. Like I'm accidentally doing it. It's like it snuck up on me. So I was yeah. so fixated on not spanking. I mean, this is just a, an example, but sure. you know, we, we have so many little things like that. Yeah. I think I, I need to tell my audience, I am not a parent yet. Um, but I do have a, a little niece right now that I adore and love. And, uh, you know, we'll get into some of the specifics of her, her issues and maybe you can lend some of your expertise as we go. But, um, my younger brother, um, uh, he had a child with this lady and then he ended up becoming incarcerated and becoming a father of which him and I both had fathers who weren't in our lives. And unfortunately he decided to repeat that cycle and that, that happens, you know, and I, you know, we'll have our conversations, him and I, about that. But my mother stepped in and now at mm -hmm. 60 years of age is raising a eight or a seven-year-old girl um, mm -hmm. and has been since, since you know, I think six months of her life. Um, and that is, you know, that's a big to-do for a 60-year-old to take that type of, you know, responsibility on. And, you know, she, my mom had three boys. So this is the first time she's had a girl and now she is kind of seeing the difficulties. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, you know, there's a lot of the, uh, uh, of the fun with it as well, but you know, um, I think she, she is asking herself a lot of questions like, how am I supposed to do this? Especially, you know, when she becomes a teenager and my mother only gets older, you know, she'll be 66 at that time. So, um, sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, we've talked about two important themes so far, support and philosophy. But uh, philosophy, like you mentioned, and I don't know if you if you experience this yourself, but like as teachers, we have lesson plans. And I always tell uh, new teachers, I'm like, oh, you got a lesson plan for the day, huh? Well, that's good. You need to have a structure. But I guarantee you in the first five minutes, that lesson plan goes out the door because something happens. And I don't know if that happens a lot to you as a parent but or what you see, but I can only assume that you might have a philosophy to not spank or maybe a philosophy to you know, discipline a certain way. And you might have to alter that based on what's working and what's not. Is that fair to say? Yeah, of course. I mean, always it's the best laid plans, right? And then we get to decide when things go sideways, like, well, who do I want to be in this moment? Like you said, you might have a plan not to spank. And then pretty soon you realize you're being way too aggressive with your kid. You almost don't even recognize yourself in the mirror anymore. And I mean, I, I, I whoever is listening to this, if that's your experience, you're so not alone. It's very, very, very common. I would say almost it's more common than the ideal scenario of like, Oh yeah, this is what I said I was going to do. And then I did it. Um, that being said, like, um, I'm a great example of like, this is what I said I was going to do. I didn't do it exactly the way I said I was going to, but I got the help I needed and I did what I needed to do to be able to actually bring that full circle and, and follow through on the, you know, commitments that I made to myself when I first decided to become a parent. And almost always, anytime you're doing something hard, it turns out to be way harder than you thought. And you're going to need way more stuff and way more kind of pivots and stuff like that to get you from point A to point B. The real 
important thing is that you do get to point B. And if point B for you is being the parent that you know you can be and doing right by your child, like most parents, if they can have that clarity to say, like, I am not moving towards point B at all right now. <laughs> if they can have that clarity, like nothing will stop them from getting what they need to actually make it to point B when point B is something so important. And for most parents, just non-negotiable. You know, like it's not okay to just not do right by our kids. I don't think anybody would feel okay about that, you know? And so when you realize that you're not, you have, this is the beauty of living in our day and age compared to our parents or our grandparents. Like now when you realize, like I am really not doing what I set out to do in this parenting stuff, there's so many resources now, so many resources compared to what our parents had or whatever. And, yeah, but I, I think I think parents or people were stubborn, right? And mm -hmm. when you ask for help, you're admitting something. And when sure. I think a lot of times people don't want to admit those things, you know, a lot of times you you'll see someone take a crying baby out of a room and you know almost embarrassed because their baby is crying, and it's like that's what babies mm -hmm. do. I, yeah, I, we all collectively can just understand that, and I think most of us do, you know, I think it's just the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the self-conscious person in that moment, you know, like I have to get my baby out of this room and that might be the respectful thing to do, but right. there's no tent, no reason to be embarrassed by that. And I think if you, you know, with this episode, if we can kind of remove some of the embarrassment and the stigma that comes along with, um, you know, admitting Absolutely. something, you're not admitting you're a bad parent. You're the opposite. Actually, you are trying right. to do whatever it takes to get the resources so that you can correct whatever behavior needs to be corrected. Um, or build a relationship with your kid or whatever it might be. Maybe you're a step parent and you're trying to figure out how to build a relationship with, with your stepson or daughter. I think that's a you know, crucially crucial thing too. Um, as 30% of parenting or, or parents in this country are single mothers or single parents. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot to that. And uh, I just wonder if people tend to find themselves too proud to ask at times. I definitely experienced that. I think one of the biggest hurdles for people hiring me is feeling like hiring me is admitting defeat or, you know, really like totally labeling themselves officially as a failure or something like that. And so that's even that, like even in our very first call when we have an intake and no one's hired me yet at all, even then my job is to support and coach this person on the things that are getting in their way of doing what they want to do. And if they're on a call with me, they obviously do want somebody to help them. Maybe not me. And that's okay. Part of the reason of that call is to see if we're a good fit with each other, but they obviously do want to do something. They want things to change and they want to be proactive about it. And even then, even after they've set up the call, even after they show up to the call and have done those in my opinion, acts of bravery, even then there's resistance to going the next step, which is, okay, I'm not just going to get information about doing something. I'm actually going to commit to doing it. It is scary. And so, I mean, yes, I totally agree. There is stigma out there. And I would say like the number one thing that we do as parents to, for our kids is that first step and whatever it is, not necessarily hiring a coach, but it could be anything, signing up for a class, asking your neighbor to watch your kids so you can just go be by yourself for a little while, hiring a babysitter, getting a cleaning person. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many people don't get the help they need, not because they can't, like they don't have the means for it or whatever, but because they believe that it means a bunch of really terrible things about them. Like right. that, that, 
that is the biggest leap that you take for your child is getting the help you need, whether it's coaching or help around the house or childcare or therapy or whatever it is. Because honestly, what we're doing, when we talk about breaking generational cycles. We're not talking about our kids at all. We're talking about rewiring our brains right. and getting our heads on straight so that when we're in that situation where we promised ourselves we weren't going to spank our kid, we actually have the mental stamina to see the situation through new eyes so that we actually don't have the knee-jerk reaction to get physical because it's not enough for all of us, it's not enough to say, I'm, next time I'm gonna just be better. I'm gonna not yell. I'm gonna offer choices. I'm gonna listen to my child. I'm not gonna get upset. I'm not gonna spank, whatever. Just saying that isn't enough. There's an emotional reason behind the choices we make as parents. And until we're actually taking care of ourselves and looking at those emotions, no amount of parent skills and reading and classes and all that stuff is going to ever change how we show up in the moment because we're showing up with the same ingredients every time we try to bake that cake. And it's going to come out the same every time until you work with new ingredients. I like that. I like that analogy. You're right. It's like, you know, I was just Googling the, the definition of discipline, which is the practice of training people to obey rules or code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. Well, that's one way. Um, it's also a branch of knowledge, typically one studied in higher education. And then the, finally, the last one is trained to obey rules or code behavior. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't just mean with, with children, like you said. It, it, it takes discipline and practice to control or to achieve that discipline as a parent right. so that you can discipline your children in the correct manner. Because if you lack the, a discipline in that area, um, mm-hmm. it's going to be very difficult if you can't figure out a way to regulate your emotions in those moments. It's easy to say, like you said, and that comes with not just parenting, but in relationships, you know, oh, I got, I got mad this time. I, I hope next time I, you know, I, I'm going to be better. Right. But then you're triggered and you've done nothing to practice or train your habit. The bad habit mm-hmm. just comes back to the forefront. You've got to figure out how to, how to That's overcome right. that. So my favorite thing about the word discipline is that it's the exact same root as the word disciple. And so I just think a lot, I I work with a lot of families. I, there's always, I always say like people tend to fall in one category or the other as as they're kind of like default mode of parenting, either they're kind of like the drill sergeant or like the, the, you know, the get, get really like maybe tyrannical and, you know, aggressive and really like to be in control or they're the like permissive or like maybe they just self-describe themselves as as like the pushover parent or you know i'm a softie or whatever all of those things um and so both of those kinds of people um come to me and especially in general the parents who find themselves to be like the softies and they have a hard time like holding a line sticking with the boundary following through when they say things to their kids often they just have a lot of like emotional baggage even around the idea of discipline and really reframing that is like discipline doesn't mean you're controlling your child punishing your child dominating your child overpowering your child crushing your child's spirit that is not what discipline is discipline just like the word disciple or discipleship is about teaching and it's about learning and you are this amazing mentor leader teacher to your child And when you hold boundaries with love, when you give consequences without any shame or anger, you are, have this incredible opportunity to teach your children something that 
honestly, most generations have never learned or they're really working their butts off to learn now in adulthood because they missed out on it in childhood. And that's like that. That's the like amazing chance we're given as parents to like really level up. Yeah. It, like you said, there's so many resources now. I, I do wonder um, how many parents uh, maybe that didn't come from a toxic um, upbringing such as yourself or or maybe even those mm -hmm. that did uh, tend to um, feel pressures from their mothers um, about how sure. to raise your children. You know what I mean? Like, are, am I doing right mm -hmm. by her or would she approve of this even though I don't agree with it? Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, grandmothers will watch, you know, mother's kids and it's like there's a clash there. I just wonder how many pressures sure. come with that as well, you know? It sure does. Of course, we are all feel pressure as parents to meet some some kind of a standard, whether it's the standard we feel that is being put on us by our parents or other parents or a book we read or our parent coach or, you know, whatever, whatever. Like we often do this compare and despair thing. And part of working with me is learning how to feel totally confident and aligned in your own parenting choices. And it's not a problem that other people might have their opinions about it. That's really none of your business. And it's totally cool for your mom to think you're screwing up. That's okay. People are allowed to be wrong in this world. You don't need to make everybody right. Yeah. You know, my mother um, had three boys and we all had three different fathers. Now, my oldest brother's dad died in a car accident when he was five or six. And then, uh, mm. then I was born and my father decided, uh, um, to not be a part of my journey. And, uh, there, if you go back a couple episodes, there's an interesting thing that he said in there about raising me. He said that because he couldn't be what I needed him to be by leaving me was his way of raising me. There's an interesting thing. You'd have to go check that episode out. Um, but then my younger brother of the three boys did have his father in his life more. Now, <laughs> more doesn't mean he was in his life. He still didn't live in the house with us. He, you know, he just seen him, seen him more. And that's going to get to this nurture versus nature conversation I want to have with you in a minute here. But mm -hmm. um, just kind of finishing up on what I was saying, my mom had three different boys and she had three different tactics of raising mm -hmm. those boys. She said, I'm going to raise you boys based on how you boys are, you know? So, you know, we couldn't compare like, hey, you got away with this, you know, because we were all raised differently. We, we tried to do that, but like she would just say, you're right. He was able to handle that. You weren't. So we raised Absolutely. you differently. And that's what I, we say all the time. Fair ahead. doesn't mean equal. Yes. So yes. And that's where I was going because <laughs> I was going there as a teacher. But basically my mom took a chance on me. Now I've never drank smoke or done anything like that day in my life. But I remember my mom was still dating and she had a new relationship when I was roughly around 14. And every weekend we would go up to, you know, to the boyfriend's house, to the boyfriend's house. And, you know, you do that mm -hmm. for a few months and you kind of get tired as the teenager, you get tired of going, but obviously mother, uh, individual woman who, you know, is happy to be in a new relationship. She needs that in order to be happy as a person. So mm -hmm. I do remember asking mom, can I stop going? You know, and my mom at one point looked me in the eyes and said, you know what I'm going to do with you? I'm going to give you all the freedom in the world. You break mm -hmm. it once, you're mine. And from that day forward, that's not a philosophy that I would probably give to my kids, um, mm -hmm. but it's something she tried. And I think I paid her off because, you know, I was able to, I mean, I wasn't perfect, but I did continue to, you know, try to, you know, not disapprove her. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I remember parents of my buddies being like, no, we absolutely not. You're not going over to that house. He's got way too much freedom. And I'm like, well, I'm not doing anything bad with that freedom, but it scared the hell out of community mm-hmm. members because of that, sure. you know, that type of uh, freedom that was given to me. So that judgment, mm-hmm. that peer pressure of just your community at large is there. So um, a lot of things from you, you're, you're saying is, is I think hopefully people absorb. Um, but I want to talk to you about my younger brother and this idea of nurture versus nature. So mm-hmm. my younger brother was raised a little bit, did have more of his father's influence. And I would even argue today that he's a spitting image of his father. Um, and even though he did have more of his father's influence, it still wasn't a lot, you know what I'm Mm saying? He had Mm -hmm. more, but it wasn't, you know, my mom still raised him without, without the help. So where do you fall on nurture versus nature? Because I would assume that your entire, uh, business plan, um, (laughs) depends on this answer, right? Uh, because a lot of people do argue that it doesn't really matter how much you do as a parent that there's already an outcome and an end game for these kids. Um, and Mm -hmm. in in the end there, so where where do you fall on nurture versus nature? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just in general, the way that I work with all my clients regardless of what age kid they have or what challenges that we're talking about could be low stakes, high stakes, whatever. We really look at this from a relationship based perspective. So like what you were saying, for example, with like, well, grandma might have a different opinion and they might be a caretaker. And when kids are with grandma, these are the way the rules are. And when kids are with mom, these are the way the rules are. And when you look at things purely from this relationship-based perspective, it's really not a problem that they have a different relationship with grandma than they have with mom. So you look at things from how do you interact and respond to your child, not how do you make your child someone different than who they are. So absolutely your child came into this world already pre-cooked with personality traits their own neurological wiring their own nervous system all of the just the the kind of their way of being in the world and any mom or dad who has more than one kid can tell you it doesn't matter In, in my case all of my kids have the same dad and it doesn't make a difference all four of them are so different Now, it did mean that all four of my kids were born on their due dates. They were all seven and a half pounds and 21 inches long. So the the nature is in there, okay? We cooked with the same ingredients. We got the same cake every time. That is fascinating. I know. But then, I I mean, it's just like night and day. The second they come out, it's like, oh, you are your own person. I remember being really disappointed selfishly, but I'm perfectly comfortable with myself to admit this. I wanted a girl. And my first kiddo was a boy and I, my second kid, I was desperately hoping that it would be a girl. I really, really, really wanted a girl. And I had done all this like reading about like, well, you know, statistically, if you have two of the same gender, you're really unlikely to ever have the other gender. And so if this isn't a girl, it's it. We'll never have a girl and blah, blah, blah. And I found out we did the ultrasound really for my own mental health. I was like, if this is a boy, I need to know in advance. And that's exactly what happened. It was a boy. (laughs) <laughs> and I was so sad. I spent probably not a long time, but maybe like a week or 10 days or something after that ultrasound, just being really sad and feeling sorry for myself. 
And the second River came out of me, I looked at him and I was like, I'm such an idiot. Like, I really thought this whole time, like, oh, if I have another boy, it's like, oh man, I already did that. I don't want another boy. I already had a boy. And the second he came out, I was like, what was I ever thinking? Like, just because he's the same gender doesn't mean anything about who he is or how similar he is to his brother or anything. And I just immediately like looked into his eyes and was like, I can't believe I ever wanted you to be anything different than who you are. <laughs> and so my point is like, yes, nature is to totally a huge part of this. It's, it's not an either or it's not like what percentage it's just your kiddo by the time they're 18 or 20 or whatever is now like this magical product of the alchemy that is their relationship with you their relationship with any other caretakers in their life and just who they are absolutely but that being said like the idea that like well our kids are already like kind of predestined to be who they're going to be I would challenge that because like, for example, let's say you have a personality trait that's just part of who you are, which is like, you're really organized, for example, when you're under stress and you don't get what you need in this world, or maybe you're forced to quote unquote, grow up too fast, that organization skill can come out real twisted, where you become like hyper controlling, almost like obsessive, you can't handle it when things don't go very well, you start being really like, um, you know, almost like super, super picky and all of those things. Whereas a kiddo who has that personality trait just hardwired in them gets what they need or has these positive relationships and for whatever reason has the support that helps them turn into the quote unquote best version of themselves, that organization skill now is like a superpower instead of being a kryptonite, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where we look at, like, how are you showing up in response to who your child is? We're not, we're not interested in making, if your child has a hard time with school and time management and stuff like that, or has ADHD, for example, or is just a real firecracker spit, spitfire and throws tantrums all the time and is super dramatic. Nothing you do with me is going to change your drama queen into Mother Teresa right? And, or change your like kind of airy fairy person into like the most grounded individual on earth. Like that's not going to happen. Right. And your efforts to do that with your child are probably harming them. Whereas flipping this around to like, how can I be in relationship with this person? Your child is a person. <laughs> um, once you look at it through that lens, it's, it, it's just night and day. It's a huge game changer. It's a huge game changer. It's just a control thing on whether or not mm -hmm. parents are willing to let go of that. Um, there's a fascinating way of looking at it. It's, it's a different perspective altogether because mm -hmm. if you look at parenting as, even though this is a four-year-old, mm -hmm. how much freedoms, controls, decisions do you let this mm -hmm. four-year-old make upon their mm -hmm. own life already? Mm -hmm. And a lot of kids are told what to do, when to do it, where to be, how to sit, all the things, how to chew, when to chew, when we eat, all these mm -hmm. things. And they might become indoctrined into, you know, certain lifestyles and decision making might be difficult for them later on in life because they've always had someone else doing that for them. Maybe that's a reach. Maybe that's really easy to say. Um, or maybe there is some truth to it. Um, I mm -hmm. think this idea of like kind of reversing the role and just looking at your kid as, okay, this is a human being. Mm -hmm. I need to be a resource all the time for this human being. What do you need? When do you need it? You know what I mean? 
Um, mm-hmm. How much of that versus structure should a parent right. do? Let me give yeah. you an example. Let me give I, you an example, okay. Ann. Just like sure. um, my kids, I'm going to let them choose when they eat and what they eat. You know, something mm-hmm. uh, just as simple as that. Or, mm-hmm. okay, is there a way to balance it and say, okay, you guys can choose your clothes today, but we're still eating at six o'clock. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like structure versus those types of uh, giving right. them freedoms to make decisions. Yeah. I love this topic because really, like uh, the first thing you said, which really stuck with me was, you know, it's really about whether kid, whether parents are willing to relinquish control. Sure. From my perspective, I would say the control, quote unquote, that parents are relinquishing is control they never had in the first place. The power struggles that go on between parents only exist when one person in a power struggle is under the illusion that they actually have power when they don't. So when you say, I'm gonna let my kids eat whatever they want when they want, you already do that because you don't control what your child ingests in their body. You truly do not. You get to decide when food is available to them. You get to decide what food you buy at the grocery store and what food you offer to them. And that's the end of your control. Your child will still have the power to sit at the dinner table and not eat anything and to say, I don't, I will only eat white foods or whatever, they can totally still do that. And the more we try to control them about that stuff, the more we are just really, um, we're just barking up the wrong tree. It's not possible to control that. And the more we do try to control, the more our kids dig their heels in because they want, they're human beings and human beings have a fundamental need to have agency and autonomy and independence. That is something that when we, when we, for example, try to control a toddler and um, about, about food is a great example. That's toddlerhood is usually when food stuff starts to set in and when parents start to feel a little bit panicky about where their kids are with food and stuff like that. Um, So for example, when we try to control kids about food, we're really basically telling them, like, for example, when you give a child a directive, eat your broccoli. Right. Your your child, especially a toddler, there is something chemical happening in their brain during toddlerhood that says you have to prove to yourself that you're separate and different and um, not the same as your parents, meaning literally like you're not the same person or organism as your parent. A newborn baby does not see itself as separate from its parent. It literally believes and in many ways physiologically is still a part of an, of one unit with their parent. And toddlerhood, toddlerhood is literally about breaking that and saying, no, you're two different people now, or you're three different people now. You're not all one organism. And how do kids do that? They make choices and they try very hard to pick the thing that's what you don't want, because that's a way to prove to their brain, we are two separate individuals and entities. If you tell your kid a directive, eat your broccoli, your child only has one choice, comply with or comply with you or don't comply with you. Right. And because yeah. they're hardwired to individuate from you, they literally can't stop themselves from saying no. They have to defy you. It's the only way for their brain to mature. Whereas if you say, it's dinner time, desserts for kids who eat their broccoli, you're literally implying choice there. You're also implying like, I love you no matter what you decide. I actually don't have a dog in this race which means your kid can't do the math of saying, well, what does my mom want me to do so I can do the opposite of it? 
And also, well, shoot, I actually have choice. I'm, I am my own person. Holy cow. It doesn't have to be this thing that's like against my parent for me to individuate. I get to individuate because I have freedom and choice and autonomy. And my parent actually honors the freedom, choice, and autonomy that I have. Do you think then, let's talk, if you were to look at like, let's say teenage rebellion, right? Do you think sometimes, I want to take what you just said and apply it to that. Maybe the teenage rebellion, you know, that decision, those decision makings, those freedoms were never given to them. And they're still trying to process that individuality, still trying to break away and prove that they're not the same, you know, organism anymore. Do you think that that Mm -hmm. might play a part in that? Is it kind of the same philosophy and ideology? It absolutely is. And the truth is that kids are individuating and emancipating from us as soon as they're out of infancy. And then that process doesn't stop even into like adulthood. So, but there is a reason why toddlerhood is often called the first adolescence because there are periods in kids' lives where they have even more of a drive to emancipate than they do when they're in other chapters. And toddlerhood and adolescence are the biggest emancipation phases in a kid's life. So if you have a rebellious teenager, it's not they're not being rebellious because they didn't get to be autonomous when they were toddlers. That may be part of it. But also, kids are hardwired to be rebellious or in some way emancipate during adolescence. So you could be like the most amazing parent on the planet and be doing everything quote unquote right, which is a fallacy, but let's just pretend that even exists. (laughs) Let's say you did all that. It still could totally be that your kid just goes through a really choppy chapter of life during adolescence. And that's not a reflection on your parenting. It's just what, where they're at in their life and in their journey. Okay. Okay. Um, how's come they never tend to rebel, eat your ice cream. Now you eat your ice cream right now or take this credit card and go shopping. How's come they never rebel that? Well, I would say we don't really run that experiment very often. Do we as parents, how often do you constantly order your children to eat dessert and boss your kids around to spend your money and stuff like that? Very very rarely. But if you, I would venture to guess that if there is a parent out there who dominates their child that way, they have a certain point of like, mom, I just, I'm sick of ice cream. No, I'm not going to eat it. Or like, I don't need any more clothes or I went shopping yesterday or whatever. Like kids definitely do reach their satiety point in, in all things, even indulgences. And actually they're much better if they're, if this like mind body connection doesn't get interrupted, they're actually much better at tuning into their satiety than adults are you know a baby doesn't binge drink breast milk and you know and a and a five-year-old doesn't starve themselves to lose weight those aren't things that kids do they listen to their bodies until we've trained them not to which is a really big reason why it's smart not to do that (laughs) i i just visualized a bunch of uh babies at a nursery just sitting around talking (laughs) Binge drinking their mother's breast milk. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Those are behaviors that adults have because they've completely lost their mind-body connection and are instead tuned into all the pressures outside of them, like you were saying before. A lot of this work is about tuning into our own inner guidance, our intuition, like what we know is right and true instead of getting confused by all the static outside us. You know, I think this idea of being a resource for your child, if you can change that perspective, it is going to 
it, it is a game changer. Um, and control, you know, I, a lot of times, especially as a teacher, I see, you know, students who you wish had more parental structure in their life. And then you mm -hmm. see the students who have <clears throat> way too much parental structure in their life. And it feels like they're brainwashed at times. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to uh, small things such as like what a kid likes and doesn't like, it seems like parents, um, like when it comes to food, uh, parents seem to be more willing to allow their, their kid to have a, you know, a choice in the matter, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh, well, she just doesn't like broccoli and that's fine. Or she doesn't like beef or whatever. Um, but when it comes to big kind of family ideas, such mm -hmm. as like whether you were raised, <clears throat> believe religious or you mm -hmm. were raised, uh, you know, like thinking that a sexual orientation was negative. Um, mm -hmm. Why, why are most parents, would you say, and I want to say most parents, but why were parents, you know, more willing to give away the control and, you know, accept um, defeat? I don't want to say defeat. That's not the right word, but accept that like, oh, you know, little Susie, it's okay. Susie doesn't like, uh, like her broccoli. She can eat whatever she wants, but little Susie better not, you know, you know, far sure. off or stray off the path of our religious beliefs. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because that those can be really divisive things that take place inside of families. Why, why yeah, do you think sure. that parents are like that? I think that every parent has their own reasons for why certain things are really important to them and certain things aren't. I mean, I, especially, I know I didn't intend for us to spend so much time talking about food, but it's just such a great example, but <laughs> it's just easy. Yeah. I have lots of clients who for them, food is a big sticking point and it's very hard for them to release um, control around, um, around food for whatever, for, for their own personal re reasons. Maybe they struggled with, um, their own relationship with food while they were growing up or interesting. Yep. Those kinds of things. But any, anyway, the point is the things that are sticking points for us, whatever they are, they're sticking points because they're deeply personal to us for some reason. Or another way to say that is the stakes are high for those things that are sticking points to us. And the stakes feel low on the other things. Like I don't care what my parent, my, my kids wear. So it's super easy for me not never to fight with them about clothing. It's just a non-issue. And then the very few times where it's important what they wear, it's not, it's also not an issue because I hardly ever have a dog in that race. So, you know, when it's like a, a wedding we're going to or something like that, and I say, you know, this is a time when it's appropriate to wear such and such. It's just it's a non-issue for them because it's a non-issue for me. For other parents, I literally just coached a mom in my um, in my group coaching program today who was like, and my daughter will only wear these two dresses and we were going to meet with her teacher today and I told her she needed to wear something nicer and she wouldn't do it. And we had this big power struggle. And, you know, my first thought is like, why do you care what your kid wears to meet their teacher? And the answer to that question is very much about I care what other people think. I for some reason, for this mom in particular, it really mattered about education. She had a belief that it was going to affect the way the teacher saw her kids, so it might affect her kids' experience in school and stuff like that, because that's her lens that she's looking at this thing. It becomes a high-stakes situation for her. And so part of our work is 
for her to get some perspective and decide for herself, is it really high stakes? And there's no wrong answer to that. If it is, it is. And then it's like, okay, great. Now, how do you set boundaries around this in a way that's not going to result in a power struggle? So I don't want anyone to get the impression listening to me when I say like, you don't really actually have control over what your kid eats, that I'm saying like, just let your kids do whatever they want and just be cool and don't be a jerk to them. That's not what I'm saying. You know, like if it's important to you. Yeah. If it's you don't have control of what they like versus what they don't. Exactly. Right. And you also don't have control over what they do, which is really, really a hard pill to swallow for parents. But, you know, for in the, the example with this mother and the clothing thing, it's like, okay, well, if it's if it's a big if it's important to you and it's part of your value system that your daughter does not wear dirty clothes, then you need to set up a structure in which you're that's not an option for your kid to choose. So instead of fighting with her and trying to argue with her about not picking that, what if when clothes are dirty, they immediately are in a place that is completely like out of sight, out of mind for her until they're clean and then they're available for her again. And if she's upset that those clothes are dirty, you can support her about how she's upset. You don't need to do anything about it. It's not a problem that she's upset and you don't need to make her stop being upset and you don't have to acquiesce because she's upset. She's like, I know it's a real bummer. I hate when my stuff that I want to wear is dirty. I get upset about that too. That's totally fine. You know, so, but the point is like every family has their own sticking points. And when you come up with one of your sticking points, so for example, for me, and I can share a very honest story about uh, my eldest son who struggles with addiction and suicidal ideation and depression. And we went through a very long journey with him um, throughout high school to get him well. And, you know, we have a family philosophy that is, you don't, you don't smoke weed in our house. You don't have paraphernalia and stuff in our house and you may not be intoxicated around our family. And that was because of Elijah's addiction and mental illness. That was a boundary that he, it was impossible for him to comply with. And I could have spent his entire high school career fighting with him to try to get him to quote unquote, respect my values. Or I could say, you know what? We don't see eye to eye. This is the way our family works. If you can't comply with those rules, I get that it's because it's something that you just can't do right now. And we're going to get you the support you need to get well, but we're not going to change the, the boundaries and the family values. And also it's totally cool if you and I don't see it eye to eye. When you have your own house, do whatever you want. And if you, if you don't think that it's a, an okay environment for you to be here, I have to respect your choice. It's, it's really, I can't control you. I can't make you a, agree with me that marijuana doesn't belong in my home. And I can't make you even want to come home for Christmas or anything like that, right? Like being in a place where it's like, we can agree to disagree. It's really, really powerful. So when you, my point is like, when you come up against a values thing, that's like, I can't back down on this. That's where the, the hard work comes in because the truth of the matter doesn't change. It just means that the work to get to the truth of the matter is harder. Yeah. You know? I, so this is where I want to kind of ask you some questions then, because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, a lot of times, and I, I mean, no disrespect when I say any of this, so don't take it that way. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you might, there might be some members of the audience that hear this and be like, yeah, this sounds so simple right? This sounds so simple. (laughs) What happens when the pushback comes? So for example, let's say, um, you know, your child, your, your oldest, uh, Mm -hmm. continues down that road, but yet doesn't, it's not about him wanting to move out of the house. It's the idea of you having to kick him out of the house. Um, Mm -hmm. and 
where, how do you, like, is that an option that's on the table for parents or is that not an option? Like how does a parent who might struggle with a, a similar situation where they've put up boundaries, they've expressed it with love. Um, it isn't agree to disagree thing. And the child continues to push right. the limit there. And is there an age, like, let's say it's a 16 year old. I mean, those are, those are real things. Cause it's like, if I, where does my 16 year old go? Right. So in our case, our 16 year old went to wilderness therapy and then residential treatment. So, I mean, it would be totally possible for a child to look at that and say, my parents kicked me out of the house. Um, I would, my opinion is that a kid who has that story, it hasn't done their work yet and they still have, you know, more work to do and treatment and in therapy and things like that. But lots of kids have that story and that's okay. That's their that's their truth and it probably is creating a lot of pain for them and it's their journey to get to a place of reconciliation around that story. Um, but yeah, of course, we can't as parents just kick our 13-year-old or 14-year-old out onto the street and nobody wants to do that anyway. But right. you might get to a place where, like in our case, it was like, we love you and we're good. We'll do everything we can to support you and get you well at home. And if at a certain point we assess the situation and realize like what we can provide you at home is not enough for what you need. Literally, I give the analogy sometimes of like, your kid is sick. My kid was sick. Just as if he were to have had cancer or something like that. I would never say like, well, sending you to the hospital because I don't have a radiation machine at home is cruel. So I'm just going to keep you at home and try to fix you at home, even though I don't actually have any of the things that you need to treat your illness that's not going to happen. Instead, I had to look at the situation and say, the level of treatment that you need is a level of tr treatment that you can't get in a home environment. And so yeah. it's time for us to do something different. Yeah. And those types of challenges, um, yeah. the challenge is just beginning because it all goes back to, like you said, even if, even if it's, it goes back to relationships being strained now, right? Somebody sure. leveraged the relationship along the way and put pressures on it. And now the other, it caused a reaction from the other person. So whether maybe, maybe the parent pushed too hard and the, this, the, you know, the son decided or the daughter decided to do this. Um, and now the parent has to overcorrect or whatever. Um, I just feel like a lot of times is then the parents who are stuck in those moments and then they do make those decisions whenever the relationship feels like it's getting better but nothing's changed no behavior has changed that's when you get mm -hmm. a lot of like parent enabling mm -hmm. um sure. because they're, I mean, they're just happy that the relationship is better in that moment like oh we're not fighting in this moment and that can be very difficult because parents will justify their enabling well i just did it this one time because, you know, I, I really believe whatever, you know, and that, and I'm just going down the road of like drugs or things of that nature, but, sure. but yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes there's a million reasons why kids turn to substances. There's a million reasons why kids struggle with mental illness. Most parents blame themselves and that's really not very helpful. It must be a relationship based approach to shift that. Anyone who's been in treatment can tell you that. Anyone who's even gone to like a 12-step program or AA meetings or anything, we talk constantly about codependencies and how important it is for that stuff to change for sure. sure. But I think the important thing to know is like in any relationship, and this is a really tough pill for parents to swallow, 
your relationship with anyone, including your child, is only as strong as the boundaries you have in that relationship. Boundaries exist in relationships so that you can keep people in your life, not to push them away, to keep them in your life. It's a great and way of looking at that, yeah. The other thing about boundaries that I think we really miss when we're parenting little kids especially is boundaries are about us. They're not about our kid at all. So you don't get a boundary is not you have to eat your broccoli. That's not a boundary. A boundary talks about what I will do, how I feel, what I tolerate, how, how I respond. So a boundary around broccoli might be like, I'm happy to give you dessert as soon as you've eaten your broccoli or, you know, any kind of boundary that you want to set that's about how something that you can enforce that's about you. So for example, tantrums or um, sibling fighting, you know, I'm happy to listen to you as soon as your voice is as calm as mine. That is a boundary, yeah. not stop yelling. I, you can't yell. You can't scream at me. You can't treat me that way. That's not a boundary. That's just you trying to tell somebody something that's patently false. Like telling a child you can't scream at me while they're screaming at you just makes you a liar. They clearly yeah. can scream at you. They're doing it right now. Right. So when we say stuff like that, we think we're setting boundaries by saying, don't call me to a to a you know a, a x or something like that or you know uh don't throw your dinner or do your homework or whatever those are not boundaries those are us completely veering out of our lane and trying to pretend like we're in the driver's seat in someone else's car which right. we are not a boundary yeah. is only for yourself language you know that's that's so in <sighs> There's so many different avenues here. It's like, I'm trying to keep it organized for the show, mm -hmm. but like, you know, one thing that comes to mind is how important language is, but Absolutely. The, the issue with language is, is that you have to have a vocabulary that understands the language and uses the right language at the right mm -hmm. time. And then you have the issue of education and parents and young parents and did they get enough mm -hmm. education and how we only read at a fifth grade reading level and we didn't quite build that vocabulary. So right. um, how are these parents supposed to win? It, it, it not sure. win, but like, you know, fail. I mean, this is why I have a job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, like you we... work with me. Like I know in this, this particular episode, we spent a lot more time talking about like kind of high level topics and concepts and philosophies yeah. and stuff like that. But what it looks like boots on the ground to work with me is a lot of skill building. Like, Here's a list of enforceable statements you can say to your child, or how about we just wordsmith some of this? Like when you work with me, you get a workbook with videos that train you on all of these techniques and then have you sit down and say, okay, well, what are common chronic misbehaviors in my family? What's a new way to handle this? What would I say instead of the thing that I find myself being a broken record and repeating myself and saying over and over again? What's a new way to say this? Like wordsmithing is a thing for yeah. sure. And it's like kind of um, this cool like feedback loop that you get into with the wordsmithing. Like in the beginning, a lot of it, my clients find themselves just like kind of parroting the stuff that I say in our sessions when I give them hypotheticals or examples. They're like, oh, that's good. I'm just going to say that. Good for you. If that feels good and resonates with you, say it just the way I said it. And that's great. And maybe the stuff behind the scenes, like the mindset that gets you to say stuff this way, it hasn't sunk in yet. But that's okay. Because the more you say things like, oh, it looks like we need a little time apart until you're ready to be with me kindly, 
instead of go to your room or stop that or whatever, right? In the beginning, you might just be saying that. It's almost like a fake it till you make it thing. But if that's the way you're talking all the time, pretty soon you're like, oh, wait, I'm not just saying, oh, that's a bummer. I actually think that is a bummer. I feel really bad for you that you don't get to watch TV tonight. Or I'm really sorry that you don't get to go to your friend's house for that play date because of the way you treated them the last time they were over at our place or whatever. Like, yeah, your consequence is something that I engineered for you because I'm the person creating the walls of the container in which you live. And I can still have so much empathy for the experience you're going through as a result of your choices, you know, and, and, and it's real. And sometimes we have to just say the stuff and learn the stuff to say. And as we do that, then it starts to click behind the scenes and the more it clicks behind the scenes the less you need me to give you examples of how to say stuff because you're just going to be looking at the world through this new lens well you'll see results hopefully that's the idea right um yeah it doesn't, sure does it mean that you're going to see results right away it's 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 a process um but it's i'm a basketball coach and i tell my players all the time fail differently do yeah. something different if this isn't working right. observe and analyze why is it not working let's try something new um, so that, that can be lended to parents as well. Um, I think I'm not sure, Anne, but I'm pretty sure that you just told me that, uh, because as a teacher, I'm not doing my job. That's why you have a career. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. No, pretty no, sure no. That's not what I mean. I mean, I like, know, I'm just joking. Parents, we don't know. <laughs> like you like you were talking about, like we have a lack of information right. and it's not a teacher's job to educate parents on parenting. It's, but like, because of that, because there's a re- there is a lack of support and information and skill building. And we're just kind of coming in cold to parenting. All we have is what we were saw modeled around us. Exactly. We do need somebody to say, Hey, here's a, here's like literally a playbook. Now, is it going to go down exactly the way, like you said, with the lesson plans? No, <laughs> but it'd be really great for you to come into a parenting situation with like a, lots of tools in your toolkit. And that's part of working with me is like outfitting that toolkit for you. Yeah, and that's that's fabulous. That's um, mm-hmm. awesome that you provide that for for parents out there. A um, couple specifics, uh, just so we can kind of touch on these. I, I did have some people say, "Hey, can you get me an answer on this?" Um, sure. I'll, I'll 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 do it more like this. Um, what would you your advice be for, let's say, um, parents that feel like they've they've had those sit down talks? Maybe they're not using the language that they should properly properly be doing, but they, you know, they maintain their patience, they're calm, they're present. Um, mm-hmm. They realize that, uh, and I'm talking about like eight nine year olds. I'm talking about second grade, mm-hmm. third grade, uh, sure. just def- just young defiance of mm-hmm. the opposite, even though they feel like they. They've done the, um, you know, well, what is it you want? What is it you're looking for? Like they've done the, they've given them the freedom of choices and they're still not sure. getting the type of behavior that they want. What would some advice you would give there? Yeah. So coming at this from the goal of getting the type of behavior you want, you're lost before you've are even begun. Ah. So that is the like switcheroo that everyone is like, wait, hang on a second. When they start working with me, I came to you because my kid's behavior is out of control. Now you're telling me that we can't be looking at this from a perspective of changing my kid's behavior. (laughs) Wait a minute. But that is true because you can't control what your kid is going to do. Right. We never have control over another human being. So how can that be our objective as parents? Instead, what I would say is, well, first of all, like you said, you've had the talks and your kid is still being defiant. 
that's no surprise to me. Talking doesn't teach. What you're doing when you're talking is setting a boundary, but that doesn't mean your kid's not going to cross the boundary. Teaching happens through experiences. Children learn through experiences and modeling. And so they learn from watching you and they learn from experiencing the, the outcome of their choice. But let's say you set a boundary, which is, uh, you know, treats are for kids who protect their teeth. That's the boundary. But, or in like probably parents who aren't doing this work yet, their, their boundary is you have to brush your teeth, which once again, we can say, well, that's not really a boundary. But okay, let's say that's the quote unquote rule in your family. You have to brush your teeth. That doesn't mean your kid's going to brush your teeth, brush their, brush their teeth. You can sit down and have the most amazing TED talk with your child. That's all about how plaque and gingivitis and you can talk about it in kid terms. Even you could say like the sugar bugs that come and they try to teach, you have to protect your teeth from sugar bugs and blah, blah. And your kid could even be hanging on your every word and saying, okay, mommy. Okay, daddy. I get it. I get it. Grandma here. I, I'm going to do it. I promise. That is not going to happen. And it's not because your kid was lying to you or there's something the matter with your kid. It's just that's not how kids work. So for sure, your kid is going to either say they brush their teeth when they didn't, skip brushing their teeth, try to get out of brushing their teeth, whatever. It's going to happen. The real teaching happens after they make the mistake. They made a mistake. Right. And here's what happens when we make that mistake. Oh, and our family treats are for kids who protect their teeth. You chose not to. Totally cool. You do you. I I, I protected my teeth, so I'm going to have a cookie. You didn't protect your teeth, which I totally respect your choice. So that's cool. And tomorrow you get to make a different choice. We'll see what you pick. Love you no matter what you decide. No biggie. So the consequence, the experience, consequences are just about ex engineering experiences for our kids. So they have these teachable moments. When we get upset, when we try to control them, when we say, I can't accept the fact that you chose not to brush your teeth. So instead, I'm going to sit with you and fight until you're like an hour past bedtime to try to make you brush your teeth, the lesson is completely lost because your emotional intensity has interrupted the entire learning process. And now their attention is on you and this like relational, remember relationship based. Now their relationship with you is front and center in a really negative way. And it's completely blocking any consciousness about, wow, I really should have brushed my teeth. Whereas a kid sitting there being like, darn it, I really want some cookies now and I don't get any. Why did I do that? And right. probably your kid isn't going to be saying, shucks, darn it. They're going to be like, nah, I want a cookie. And that's, right. that's okay. Kids are allowed to be upset. Consequences are a bummer sometimes. When, I, when a cop pulls me over because I was speeding, do you think mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, please give me a ticket, officer. Shucks, I wish I had been driving you know, tomorrow I'm going to drive slower. No, I'm like, oh, but I'm late to a meeting. I didn't see it. And my speedometer's broken and it's not fair. And I'll probably complain about it to my husband later. Like this jerk cop pulled me over. It's total such crap. I don't deserve it. Blah, blah, blah. That's okay. I still got my consequence and I'm allowed to be upset about it. That's not like biggie. But yeah, and consequences, yeah, consequences gets a bad connotation or to it because they always think negative, but it's like, there's positive consequences too for, you know, absolutely. You brush your teeth. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. That means that you're eligible for treats today. I'm so happy for you. And that <laughs> is the consequence of the choice you made to brush your teeth. And your kids must be like, like, mom is so enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They probably do think that actually, but I mean, I don't talk to my 17-year-old that way. I'm like, what? what? You took your meds this morning without me asking you? You're such a special boy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 
I, try it tomorrow. Let me know how it goes. Um, one more, one more, maybe, maybe this is uh, too generic or too vague. I'm not giving enough specifics, but it's just mm-hmm. without, you know, boring the audience or giving, you know, so too self-indulging. Uh, my niece uh, mm-hmm. is um, my, my, I've told you a little bit of the history. My, my, my mother now is raising her. Um, sure. She is living with my mom and mm-hmm. um, uh, a friend of the family lives there as well. And um, so she's got a male figure. She's got a, a my mother. She's got a female figure. And mm-hmm. she is going, so should be going in the first or second grade. Um, she keeps having issues at school where, and I mean mm-hmm. issues like um, we don't see these things when she's with us. She does, We don't see them with mom. Right. We don't see them with grandma. When she's at the family function, she's a sweetheart. She listens. She, you know, she'll... Mm-hmm. She'll help out. She'll volunteer to do, you know, help out. She's just the sweetest kid. But then when she gets at the school system um, and she's told, you know, a rule or a boundary or however it's put to her, something that she doesn't like, she will throw things or fly or be a flight risk from the school. She will, mm-hmm. um, you know, for whatever reason, she'll destroy an entire classroom. Um, she has held babysitters hostage, you know, mm-hmm. by you know, saying verbal things that we're not sure where she's quite learned them from, but we, you know, public schools, you hear a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, things of that nature. And my mom is just like, I am so worried about the future. I don't know what to, where to begin, what to do. So my mom's done all the right things. She's got her counselor. She's, mm-hmm. you know, she, she's asking her questions, trying to, you know, do the, give her freedoms for decision-making, but yet show her structure. But this is going to be the third year now going back to school that my mom is just completely afraid because she's like she's being called to come and get her and she's mm-hmm. not able to work like she should and she's at the end of her run with work she doesn't want to get fired from her job she's got about another three right. years where she's got to kind of got to figure this out so like what does she do what are some mm-hmm. exercises some skill building or whatever some tools that you can give her or those yeah. like her so in any situation where there's a discipline challenge that's happening away from the caregiver. So it's school or daycare or with a babysitter, like you said, what you really want to make sure is that the place where this stuff is happening, there is a discipline plan. And so oftentimes, and you probably can back me up on this as being working in the school system, certain, some schools, it seems like it's happening more and more frequently, but that might just be me getting older. But it seems to me that more and more schools really don't have a great discipline plan in place their plan is call the parent. And um, that definitely should be happening because parents need to be aware of what's going on in school. But also there needs to be structure in the school room. And I'm not just talking about rules. I'm also talking about consequences, right? Right. So that's point number one. And same thing if, if kiddos misbehaving with a babysitter or a daycare. Like the first question to ask is, how do you handle discipline when kids misbehave with you? Right. And really show this other caretaker that you are there to back their plan up, not to swoop in and either, you know, impose your plan or undermine their plan or, you know, be the hero rescuer or whatever, even if sometimes the teacher might want you to be. But to say, tell me what your approach to discipline is, because I want to support you in the classroom and at home. And if the teacher or the principal or the caretaker or whatever is saying like, well, we really just try to talk to the kids about it, or we don't really have a plan, or we just call the parents or whatever, which I'm, I'm telling you is happening more and more. 
that's a problem. It's not the only, that's, on, that's not the only piece in this puzzle, but it is an important piece. There needs to be something that happens in the situation when she is misbehaving, not later when she gets home. Right. And so I want, I want you to go to the step two of that. Um, yeah. when, when, once the school has a discipline plan, but she, what mm -hmm. Anne's saying right now is correct in the sense of like, <clears throat> what ends up happening is, is if, if schools don't have a discipline plan and you're not asking those questions, um, far too often your kid will act up in class because the reward, they get to go home and correct. mom, dad, parent, guardian, whatever shows up. And it's like, they're doing, because they know that they're going to get what they want out of it, which is to go home. They don't want to be here for whatever reason. Um, I will say I've worked in now three different schools and we all have um, all three of those schools have had a discipline or some type of structure put in place, you know, whether it be mm -hmm. to pull the kid aside and talk, maybe that's the first time. Why did you do this? Mm -hmm. Or what was, you know, what was going on? Or maybe it's a school counselor or maybe mm -hmm. it's the, to remove them from the class altogether. Um, right. The issues are, and this is where the challenges come in because I am actually seeing it quite often where, especially at that elementary age, that young, you know, first, second, third grade, um, where we don't want to call the parents, mm -hmm. but we also lack the resources to provide the correction that is needed or the whatever would, you know, in would make that student be prepared to go back into that classroom where that teacher now feels supported and comf right. comfortable because she's responsible for 25 sure. other kids. You know what I mean? So right. what is, that's where it's like, what can we do more if there is right. a discipline structure put in place? Sure. Well, I will say that's a converse, that's a whole nother conversation about like how underfunded our schools are. And I yes. will talk yeah. about that too. But, but for now, like, I think what's really important from the parenting perspective is to know, to be in communication with a teacher in a way that's showing them like, I want you to feel comfortable disciplining my child. Let's, I've got your back and let's talk about what's going to work and come up with something that respects the way you want to run your classroom. Sure. Not I'm going to come in guns blazing mama bear. Um, so that's the first piece. And, and in the specific case of your niece, I would say this probably isn't a reflection specifically on the school not having resources because you're telling me that it's happening with babysitters and, right. and things like that. So I do think it'd be good to really have that conversation with any caretakers, including the school about like, listen, I want you to discipline my kid. Let's figure out what, what that looks like. And blah, blah, blah. Some of the examples you're giving of like talking and talking to the counselor, those are good. Once again, if we go back to like, is that really a consequence? Is that really a boundary? I would say no. Like the kid needs to experience like, this is what happens when I make this choice. And I don't really like what happens when I choose to behave this way. It doesn't need to be punitive. And what makes it a consequence and not a punishment is how we deliver that consequence. But to say, you know what, kids who treat their fellow students this way, they don't get to eat lunch with everybody else or they don't get to go out for recess. And I, I totally get that that brings up these problematic things of like, okay, so where's the staff member who sits with this kid? I get that. Right. We can't solve all the world's problems in yeah. one podcast, but you see right. where I'm going with this. Yeah. Then the second piece of this puzzle is if the school or caretaker or whatever can handle this on their own, if at all possible, then they should, and you should yes. stay out of it except to just be supportive. Because if the kid is getting sufficient consequence and discipline in the school environment, and then you discipline them again when they get home, 
you're just at that point it's becoming punitive and like you're sort of like beating a dead horse so you want to really make sure that there's a good structure in the environment where this kid is misbehaving and see is that enough to help this kid make better choices yeah. if the answer to that question is no then we go to like quote unquote phase two which is we have consequences at home for choices you made at school yes or we have consequences at home for choices you made with the babysitter or whatever and here's my biggest cautionary tale about that because what happens when parents try to do this is they talk to the teacher at pickup they say a good day thumbs up bad day thumbs down they're doing that right at the end of the day right in front of the kid usually yep. and i will i bet you there's parents listening to this already who have had this experience because i can't tell you how many parents have told me this where it's like now we're doing this thing where i find out if they had a good or bad day and that determines if they had they get xyz privilege at home and in the car on the way home they're like almost bragging about whether they were good or bad or like you can see it's like happening right in real time before your eyes the kid internalizing the fact that they're like a problem student their yeah. teacher is judging them. There's like this like verdict at the end of the day that determines the rest of their day. So I would have very clear communication with the teacher that I want, I am backing you up at home, but I will not discuss my kid's behavior with you at pickup or in front of my child. Right. So if that means a note in the backpack, an email that you send to me at lunchtime, text me, whatever. But this is something so that later on when it's screen time, let's say this kiddo is like, okay, dinner's over. I want to watch my shows. And that's when you say, oh, buddy, I would love for you to be able to watch a show. But it turns out that you threw a chair at Susie today in the classroom and screens are for kids who make good choices at school. So we'll try yeah. it again tomorrow or whatever. That's great. Having this like sort of like public trial at the end of the day in front of all the other parents and students and teachers and stuff it it really isn't great and it usually winds up creating more worse behavioral problems yeah because they're watching everything you do they are Absolutely. whether we think they are or not they are um man great stuff and just great stuff there is so much there you're right that's another podcast because i would love <laughs> to have i would almost like you know it'd be an interesting uh interesting show if uh we brought on live people that call in maybe and ask questions oh yeah then, that's great i yeah, love that I stuff i mean that's that what would, i do in my coaching program you log in every week and just lay it on me whatever your questions are <laughs> i think that's i think that's fantastic um and uh i'm gonna g give you the stage here i want you to promote some mm -hmm. of your things and i'm gonna tag sure. everything in there and I'll, I'll i'll plug everything for you too but just awesome. uh where can people reach you those that listened today and loved everything mm -hmm. that you were saying or maybe they want to you know challenge you on something or they've got sure. a thousand questions for you where can they reach you and um just yeah. uh, tell them that stuff now stage is yours the best way to find me is to just go to my website, which is annkaplanparentcoach.com. Um, and I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes so I don't have to spell my name or whatever. <laughs> um, but go to annkaplanparentcoach.com and you'll find a million resources, a million ways to even get free support from me, whether it's listening to me on all the podcasts I'm on. Um, you can get my free workbook, Getting Your Kids to Listen the First Time. Um, you can um, set up a free consultation with me where you get coaching for me for a whole hour, no cost, no obligation kind of thing. So lots of ways to just get help for me. You could also read my blog, which is full of concepts like this. It's probably at this point, I've been doing it for like five years now. So it's a pretty lot of stuff in there. <laughs> and you can search even just saying like sibling rivalry, separation, anxiety, whatever it all pops up. Sure. Um, 
The other thing you'll find if you go to my website is information about my next retreats. I just wrapped up my summer retreat in the beginning of August and I'm doing a fall retreat. We talked about Michigan in the beginning of this. Yeah. I have an amazing lake house, seven bedroom lake house on Long Lake in Traverse City. And I am hosting a retreat there for moms in October. We still have two spots left open. So snag those up. We're going to be doing amazing like self-care work parent coaching work, and then just so much fun going out to wineries and all that and, kind of really fun stuff. And, and they can, they can go to your website and get registered through there. Uh, oh right? yeah, okay. absolutely. All the stuff is there for you. So that's just go to the website and you'll find everything I just talked about. <laughs> I feel like, man, I, I hope, I hope you get a couple of those spots. I hope you get those filled up because uh, this almost felt like it was meant to happen here. You being from Michigan originally and then now the I podcast know. is here. So, yeah. Isn't that funny? And anybody who knows what Northern Michigan is like in oh, the yeah. fall knows that it is spectacular and breathtaking. And if you go to the, the landing page I have for the retreat, all the pictures on that landing page are just pictures that my family and I took with our iPhones and they still are spectacular. So if you've never been to Michigan in the, the fall, now is your excuse to do that. <laughs> yep. Yep. It is the best time to come. Um, there's only about four months, five months out of the year where Michigan really stands tall. And that's one of them. So you need to come and visit. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I just can't say thank you enough. I thought the show was spectacular. We went on hour 20, believe it or not. Which is oh my gosh. Sorry, everybody. I'm no, such a no, jammer I think dog. it's great. <laughs> I think it's great. There was a lot of great stuff here. Um, I just want to say that I think it's important that if you guys take anything from this, that failing differently, um, resources, changing your perspective, control, letting that go, uh, all these different themes. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, just showing up, showing up and trying, um, do something, you know, that shows your kid that you care and that you're there. Um, because there's a lot of byproducts and negative consequences that come if you don't do that. So I think if you guys are watching this show, you're already doing the right thing. So, um, you should be proud of yourself for that and uh, go to the retreat. It's going to be a great time. So um, Bobby Talks, three dots. You guys know the drill. Review, rate, subscribe, do the whole thing. YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Um, we appreciate you guys listening, and we'll see you on down the road.